Okay, everybody. Good morning. You guys want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to do part 5. We're going to finish this chapter. This was a longer chapter. Um, took a little bit more time because I felt like we needed to have a little more time on this. Today's a, probably the longest section that we've done in this chapter. But we're going to bring it to a close this morning. My intention was to have two weeks on this, but you guys know I had food poisoning last week, so I wasn't able to make it. But I think we're good to finish this for today. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at, beginning at verse 25 to 40. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to get started. Actually, I'm going to pray first, and then I will read it. So let's pray and ask the Lord for His help. Father, again, we love You, and we thank You for who You are. Lord, we worship You for who You are always first. You are the God of all creation. You are the uncreated One. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Lord God, so we worship You for being who You are, and we worship You, Lord God, for all the amazing and wonderful and mighty works that you have done in this good and great earth that you've created, Father, this great universe that you've created, Lord God, that even though it's fallen as it is, Father, we can still look up up into the heavens and declare what your word says, that the heavens declare the glories of God and the sky above shows the work of your hands. Father, you are an amazing God. And you are so much more glorious, so much more wonderful than any beautiful thing that you've created. So, Father, help us to not lose sight of that this morning. Help us to have a clear mind, a clear head, Lord God, free from distraction, so that we can give our due attention to your word, Father, what you have communicated to us because you care for us and you love us. So help us this morning. Help me this morning. Help Pastor this morning. And help any other teacher, Lord God, as they bring forth your word. Help them to be clear, Father, and be with us and be the helper that we need, Father. And we thank you for that. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say say this for your own benefit 
not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right. So if you look at your outline topic today, is the godly call to be prudent and sagacious. I had no clue what that word sagacious means until I was looking up something and, and it just came across it as another uh, synonym for prudent. But sagacious means having or showing keen mental discernment and good judgment. And, you'll re- and the reason why, you'll see why I used also that as one of these words because it has a lot to do with this lesson, I believe, the heart of what this message is. So we already know what the scripture is. I just read it. General objective is living for the age to come. That's what we all look forward to. Specific objective, being balanced and discerning in this life, this age we can say. And then thesis, for me to live is Christ. The general outline for this morning is going to be number one, we ought to have a keen awareness of the circumstances and not make our decisions void of understanding them. This is going to be verses 25 to 31. Number two, nothing should distract us from our main purpose in life. It's going to be verses 32 to 35. And then number three, we can be at peace concerning the decisions we make when they are made using wisdom. The remainder of the verses, 36 to 40. So some helps there I put on here because, believe it or not, there's a, there's a difference of opinion in translating a lot of these verses. That depending on what version you're reading, it, it, it's translated much differently. So just a, a couple of things. The Greek word Parthenon, we're going to see that quite a bit. In this passage, it means virgin maiden. As you can see, the verses that's being used. The Greek word agamos, which means unmarried man or woman, in verses 32 and 34. And then the Greek word anthropo, which means man, could be man or woman in verse 26. But I'll explain that when we get there. So let's look at number one, that we ought to have a keen awareness of the circumstances and not make our decisions void of understanding them. So let's look again here at verses 25, just 25 and 26 for a moment. It says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Okay, so the second verse is going to help us interpret, interpret this, this passage. But before that, Paul again displays great humility, as he's done already, by giving his opinion on the matter concerning betrothed women. The word for betrothed is the word parthenon, which means virgin or virgin maiden. And the context of this passage we're going to see in other words used later will help us to interpret this. But what is most helpful, I believe, is the feminine definite article, hey, used before the word Parthenon in the passage. So this makes virgin maiden rather than just virgin by itself. 
make the most sense, which is why I chose the ESV. Usually I read the New American Standard as my main one, but ESV I think does a better job here, so I use that. So <clears throat> we need to remember that culturally, back then, marriage were most of the time, if not all the time, arranged. Right? And betrothals, we use that synonymously when we talk about engagements, but they are quite a bit different. Okay? They have some similarities, but they're also different. So betrothals were a commitment to be married, rather than engagements are more like intentions to be married. Not that there's no commitment involved in it. Hopefully when a Christian gets engaged, they should be committed to this, okay? But betrothals were a little bit more binding. They were a little bit more, um, they held a little bit more weight, so to speak, okay? And they were able to be delayed, if you understood how it worked. They could be delayed really indefinitely for, for quite a bit of time. So, okay, so again, we need to remember that Paul's addressing questions. He's going to be dealing with that for, for quite a bit now um, that were written concerning issues that related to the Corinthians' present context. The present distress that we see in verse 26 is the word ananke, which speaks of the current pressures of life in the current context. So there's a doesn't tell us in particular what this present distress is, but there's a couple of things I think that might be a little helpful for our understanding. The first is the reality that famines existed during this time in the Roman Empire. If you look at Acts chapter 11, in verses 27 to 30, we read this. It says, Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine in all, in over, all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. This is going to be important. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. We know that the emperor Claudius reigned from A.D. 41 to 54. If you jump on to Acts chapter 18, which speaks of Paul in Corinth, that was at approximately A.D. 51. So it was during that time when Claudius was reigning. And we know that it affected the poor in Jerusalem, as we just read, and Paul made a collection for them. We also know, as we'll see later in this, in this book, that some are using that as an excuse to come to the Lord's table and essentially be a selfish glutton. Right? And, and that, again, there, there was never, that's not an excuse to be able to do that. The next reality that may be helpful is that Christians were deeply persecuted for their faith. We know this, really, if you think about, we think of our own context. So let's just say that the past few hundred years, Christians didn't have it so good. Historically, Christians really did suffer. Okay? And especially in the early church right here, they suffered greatly. They were being arrested. They were being beaten, they were being killed to a greater extent than normal. And we know not too much longer after the Emperor Claudius, Nero became king. And Christians suffered even more under Nero because he was a pretty brutal emperor. In fact, this letter, most theologians agree, was written at approximately A.D. 56. So Nero is already the one who was an emperor. So whatever this present distress was, Paul thought that it was wise under the temporary circumstances that persons remain as they are that is not yet married. And the reasoning being, I believe, is that 
in any of these circumstances, being married adds more difficulty. If you imagine if there's a famine in the land and a father who is responsible to provide and feed and do all that stuff for his family, it's just going to make it more difficult, right? If you are being beaten and tortured and all that kind of stuff, that makes it a lot more difficult when there's a family, all right? So I think this is kind of what Paul is talking about. Uh, In verse 26, person, the word person in verse 26 is the word anthropos, which is the masculine version of a human being. And because it's in the masculine version of the word, it would be better translation as man, which I think ESV doesn't do a good job right here, but it would be better translated as man, which is why I said it is good for a man to remain as he is. And the reason could be that the man usually took the lead in the betrothal. We know that it started by the father of the bride, okay, or well, really both, both the, uh, the, the groom and the bride, okay, but the man took the lead in how things were going to go. He could delay it if he wanted to. So if this was the case, it would be easier to function in the present distress. So really, Paul, again, is being prudent, right? Sagacious. God wants us to be this way in all things. God wants His church to be wise. He does not want us to respond to the knowledge that He has given us like fools. And if you look at the concepts that these words represent, there's subcategories of wisdom, which is always the will of God for His people. So everything we know that everything that we do or anticipate doing should be thought through first, considering the things that can go wrong or even right. And there's probably no greater area where we must exercise this kind of wisdom than in the area of marriage, right? We don't want to be foolish. Think of how many Christians have been foolish when when it comes to marriage, okay? But something for us just to, to think about because we know that marriage is a binding contract before God and one must count the cost, okay? And there are many examples of this in the scriptures. This first point is going to be the majority of our of our lesson today. Um, Our actions and decisions now may, and if we be honest, usually do affect our future. Reading over the book of Lamentations, and I was talking with my son Anthony, going over this um, earlier in the week, and I noticed something in in verse 9 of chapter 1 that I felt goes really good for this, that stood out to me. Concerning the nation of Israel, again, the prophets weeping over really the nation of Israel. And it says, her uncleanness, that is Israel, was in her skirts. And then the second clause here, she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. And their future, Israel's future, had everything to do with the present. That is, using their minds and obeying the Lord and being wise and discerning in what God has showed them. If they obeyed the Lord and strived to keep His commandments, their future would have been bright and good. And perhaps this is probably no better said than in that popular verse in Joshua 1.8 where it says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And that is so true. But unfortunately, we look at the history of Israel 
and it didn't work out this way, right? So we cannot foresee the future perfectly. No one can. We're not God. We already know that. But God does give us a great deal of insight by the simple reasoning of our minds and not taking lightly what He has said in His Word. Right? He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That would include us saying, Lord, this is what you said, I'm going to obey you. That is the righteous thing to do. Certain actions lead to certain consequences, both positive and negative. Right? So whatever was written before, and Romans tells us, was written for our learning that we, through the patience and comforts of the Scriptures, might have hope. In other words, learn from mistakes. Learn from what God has revealed to us so that we don't have to fall in and make the same stupid mistakes. So in a very real sense, God gives us the ability to predict the future by simple reasoning. Not perfectly, not perfectly, but by logical implication. Okay? God says this. If you don't do this, this is going to happen. Well, if you do this, things are going to go well, right? He kind of helps us out a little bit. We just need to pay attention to what he's saying. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, coming towards the end here of the Pentateuch, Moses is getting towards the closing of his life, right? Again, speaking concerning the nation of Israel, it says, For they are a nation lacking in counsel, and there is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. Why was there no understanding in them? Did they really not have counsel? They had Moses, they had Joshua, and most importantly, they had God's good and perfect law, His word to them up to that point. So it's not like they did not have anything to hang on. You know, I can take it further and say that they had God's favor as a nation. He made them into a nation. He led them out of Egypt. He did wonderful, wonderful works, mighty works for them. Right? And we know that mankind has the truth. This has like a Romans 1 ring to it, right? Mankind has the truth, but what do they do? They suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Right? And that's never good. Deuteronomy chapter 31, just one chapter before that. Moses writes this, for he says, For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I commanded you. This had to be tough for Moses. Right? And evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. You know, they were out understanding, not because they were without the truth, again, but because they suppressed it because of their prior commitment to foolishness. You know, looking at this, I was thinking of a quote that I read many years ago, and I was able to find it again on Creation Ministries website. I have it on that paper if you guys want to read along it. But it's concerning Professor Richard Lewontin. I believe that's how you pronounce his name. But essentially, he's a geneticist and a self-proclaimed Marxist. Was one of the was certainly one of the world's leaders in evolutionary biology, and he wrote this very revealing comment. The italics were in the original, and it illustrates the implicit philosophical bias against Genesis creation, regardless of whether or not the facts support it. So let's listen to what he says. 
And this is, one of, this is one of the leading authorities, or was one of the leading authorities, and there's many more like this from people such as Dawkins and some other popular people. It says, Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. That is, that only thing that really exists is matter. Right? And then he says this, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world, but, on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce the material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So in other words, even if it all logically shows, even the evidence shows that it is, we're not going to let a divine foot in the door because we have a prior commitment. A commitment to essentially suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right? Going back to our text. I think that in view of the, verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Again, I believe God wants us to understand the times. He wants us to make our decisions, understanding the times and being wise. If you look at King David when he was in the beginning of his reign, in First Chronicles we read of David's mighty men, that God gave him and equipped him with a bunch of really, really mighty men that did mighty things like David did mighty things, right? And... It says this of the tribe of Issachar here in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. says of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. So again, wisdom and understanding the times, I believe, is paramount to help us to make wise decisions. Right? Going back to our text again for a moment, the reality is very simple. Difficult times will come, may come, and the undeniable reality is that those times are elevated when there is a spouse to take care of and children to take care of. And he's not saying not to get married. He's simply just trying to point out something, especially for the man who had the responsibility to take care and provide for them. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Let's continue. Verse 27. He says, Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Okay, so let's look at this again. So there's no confusion. Paul makes it very clear that he's not encouraging divorce. Some might think this if those were if they were already married. If the two are married, continue being the spouses, godly spouses that God has called you to be. If there is kids, continue being the parents that you're supposed to be. But he says that if you're not married, 
it would be better or easier under the current circumstances to remain that way. And this is why I believe he says that he is trying to spare them of troubles that may arise from marriage in the current situation. The reality is, marriage, and I'll say it later on, marriage is never easier, but sometimes it may be better. So, as we'll see that. So in verse 29, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. He's going to kind of explain himself, but if you're like me, or maybe if you look at the language here, it seems like he was pretty clear, and then when he explains himself, it seems a little bit, what is he talking about here? So let's look at this, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with this world, with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Again, some might respond to this by saying, what do you actually mean, Paul, by all this? You were just pretty clear up to verse 28, so what does he mean by these verses? It seems a little bit all over the place, right? And I believe, as I was looking at this, that it all comes down to the word priority. I'll explain to you what, what I mean. Our priorities should always be in order as Christians. No matter where you find yourself, our priorities should always be in order. Number one in the life of all believers should be living for the Lord. And that means that we should make sure our actions in every circumstance, to quote the mighty Len Leucci, are of Him. Right? It's not enough to say living for the Lord. What we mean by that is, are my actions of Him? Is this truly of the Lord? Right? And I believe that this is what Paul is trying to show us in these verses. So no matter where we find ourselves, our focus should not be necessarily on the here and now, but on the age to come. In other words, we're living for the age to come. Yeah, we have to live in this time, during this time. But on the priority list has to be something much bigger. And oh, what a wonderful day that will be. So if one is married, wonderful. It is a gift from God. And His will for most people. But one cannot lose sight of the one who joined you with your spouse. Right? He has to have preeminence. Your marriage should be of Him and for Him. He should still be on the top of the priority list. In verse 30, it says, And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. If you think of the word mourning, it's not M-O-R-N, right? M-O-U-R, it's a different kind of mourning. And mourning uniquely has to do with this age, right? We know that there will be no more mourning in the age to come. There will be no more tears, there will be no more sorrows in the age to come, the very thing that we are living for. Sometimes, loss happens in this world. People die. Right? Tragedy happens. And sometimes believers can let the mourning dominate their lives to the point that it actually becomes irrational. That we've allowed that mourning to rob us of any joy. Then that's never good. And I really like what MacArthur says on this. 
He says, emotions are more controllable than we sometimes think, especially for Christians. We are not to be emotionless and certainly not hard-hearted or indifferent. He says, love does not allow such attitudes. But Christian love is much more than emotion. It is an act of will, not simply a reaction to circumstances. True love will, in fact, help keep our emotions in proportion and perspective. When a husband, wife, child, or dear friend dies or becomes crippled or diseased, we do not laugh or celebrate. On the other hand, the mature Christian does not fall apart and lose all hope and purpose and motivation. And I like what he says, and I agree with him. We know that God has called each and every Christian to maturity. He doesn't want us to remain immature, right? When loss happens, we should mourn. We're human. That would be unloving or cruel to not mourn when death happens, right? We should weep with those who weep, and we should rejoice with those who rejoice. It's just part of loving each other, right? But life must move on. God does not allow us believers to throw in the towel or live for us when tragedy happens. He is still on the top of the priority list. And it doesn't change when something like this happens. There's not a situation in this life that makes an exception for us to just throw in the towel and forget about God. Because if we have breath in our lungs as a believer then God is the, call, the, call, the high calling that He has given us is to still live for Him. And the next clause there says, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Do you think God wants us to not rejoice in anything here on earth? I don't believe that's the case, right? Proverbs 5.18 is a few things. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. If you're married, you should rejoice with your spouse. If you have children, Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. You should rejoice. You should be thankful. You should be, have joy if you have children. And the list goes on and on. There's so many other things that we can have joy in. But guess what? All those things can take the place of God on a priority, on a priority list. Right? And they should never... We should hold those things and embrace those things, but they should never take the place of God on the priority list. And those who buy as though they had no goods. What does this mean here? Material things. Are material things evil? No, right? They're a gift from God, and we do not have to feel guilty of enjoying the pleasures of life. God provides and He gives us things. He doesn't have to give us these things. He's promised to provide our every need, but He gives us so much more, right? They're a gift from God. But sometimes, and probably most of the time, if we be honest, the ma- or the majority of times, these type of material things, these material blessings can dominate our lives. They can move way further up on the priority scale. And I believe this mostly happens subconsciously for believers. That is, we never intended for this to happen, but luxuries will often do that. They often distract us, right? We can allow them to have an improper place on the priority list. And not only that, those things fall 
very, very low, if anything, don't even make the list. Right? You know, sometimes it's better to have less. I really do believe that. Now, saying that, okay, Mike, so why don't I just take away all the luxuries that you have? What I mean by that is when someone has less, there's less distractions, and they oftentimes appreciate the simple things. You know, I remember, this was years ago, 20 years ago, we had uh, Vernon Brewer, remember, for World Help, to one of those Christian adoption agencies, right? And uh, he had the kids there that, that you can adopt. You don't actually, you know, you, you donate. Like World Vision. He sponsored them. Kind of like that. Except this was, World Help is, you know, it's not corrupt. It's, it's biblical. Whatever. Kids were here and they would stay at some of the houses. And if you look at these kids, I still remember. How, I still remember, you had, you had two or three kids that stayed in our house. And we opened the refrigerator and they saw lemons. And they got so excited over lemons. They want the lemons with salt. <laughs> Make it more sour. God bless them. Oh, they like that. But they... They, 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 they were like, it was like the greatest thing. You know, you think of the shoebox things that we do, right? Let's be honest. We get so much more than a shoebox for Christmas, most of us. And yet that goes so far because these kids don't have any. It's a lot of distractions. So again, these things can get in the way of what really matters. No, I like this verse. I've always liked this passage in Proverbs. I just thought it would be fitting. I want to focus more on, on <clears throat> the part that says being full. But in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 and 9, it says, Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I may not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? In other words, have too much. And you completely forget that you're dependent on Him, right? Or that I may not be in, or that I not, may not be in want and steal, have that temptation and profane the name of my God. So again, emphasis clearly on the part of being full and denying the Lord, forgetting that He is the one who gives all things and allows us to have such good things, Right? So don't let the riches of this world take control of you. Yes, Miss DJ. I'm, this is the first time I've really understood. I absolutely agree with this. Um, what I'm getting, though, is uh, the language, I think, is one part of what screws us up. The way he's saying it, and it's, it's the idea of the attitude of gratitude. You're having a spouse as at, being married as if you aren't married aren't you blessed that you are? It's, I, I, I don't know how to express that. He, he tried, and I think he, there was a, a, just one little idea missing, and that's why people get messed up on this. And it's the idea that you could be without, and the attitude of these things are all under the, the blanket of God gave them to you. You don't hold them tightly, so tightly, that God can't take them away if needed. Mm-hmm. So, that attitude of gratitude. And I, think well, I mean, certainly we need an attitude of gratitude. I'm going to agree with you. What he was trying to say. Yeah. So again, I think a couple of verses that go with this. First um, Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Many griefs because you're 
focus is totally off. And you, you're, you're, you're clinging to these things when you shouldn't be clinging to them. You should be, yeah, kind of like you said, holding it loosely. Matthew 6, 19-21, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, this age, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So no matter where you find yourself, single, married, whatever, it's not just here, it goes so much more further than this, right? Our treasure should still be the same. It should never... Our treasure is Him. Nothing else is more glorious and wonderful than Him. So riches, wealth, and other material things should never lose its place again on the priority list. Verse 31, And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Again, I believe here, Paul is speaking of having the eternal lens. We are not to be living for now, but for the future. And it doesn't mean when I say that, that there's nothing that we do that lives for now. Or I, think of, uh, I think when it comes to savings, I'd love to have more savings, right? But usually, for me, I have a tendency, now usually wins. In other words, I probably should make, maybe if I didn't take this vacation, I'd have a little bit more savings for the future, but I don't have these memories anymore from my kids or without my family, so now usually wins. I think it's, it's a little, little bit different here. Okay, we should always have an eternal lens, okay? We are not to be living for now, but for the future. It's very easy to get attached to the here and now, but the here and now will once be gone, Right? Like what Ellsworth says, he says, The Christian is free to use the things of this world, but he's not to become so engrossed in them that he forgets he is a pilgrim here and his real treasure is elsewhere. Remembering the shortness of life gives the Christian a true perspective on material things. And I think that's so true. right? So our priorities should always be in order. Number two. Number two, nothing should distract us from our main purpose in life. It leads us right into these next verses. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried and betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. We know, it's a blanket statement, we say it all the time, that our purpose in life is to bring glory to the Lord with our lives. Paul is not saying again that only single people can do this. He again, I believe, is trying to get us to see the big picture. And the big picture, I really believe, is the age to come where righteousness flourishes. In verse 33 and 34, usually when we think of worldly things, we think of things, uh, you know, we might think of things that have to do with a worldly perspective, a worldly point of view, where God is not part of it. But in verse 33 and 34, worldly things, I believe, have to do with this age. In this age, there is marriage and there's children. Marriage and children are unique to this age, to this life. But in the age to come, again, my beautiful, wonderful wife who I'm joined with, 
My children, they're my sister, my brothers. My, bro- my brothers and sisters. Right? There's no marriage. We're not given into marriage. Luke 20, verse 34 to 36. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that is the age of come he's referring to, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So again, Paul wants believers to be free from distractions. Richard Pratt reminds us that people in every station of life, whether married or unmarried, are susceptible to concern and anxiety when they lose the eternal perspective. We talked about, a few weeks ago, taking comfort in the sovereignty of God, that having the vertical perspective is the key to a joyful Christian life, and I believe it is, to have the vertical perspective. Not a Christian life that is free from trials or difficulties, it doesn't mean that, but a life that I would say is free from the crippling anxiety that often comes from those difficulties because we constantly are reminded of this great eternal perspective, right? That whatever it is that I'm going through, well, God has allowed it. If I'm not going through it, and maybe I should be going through it, God has allowed it. can never lose sight of the sovereign hand of God in our lives. And I believe that, again, is here what Paul is talking to. And then finally, number three, we can be at peace concerning the decisions we make when they are made using wisdom. Wanting to know the will of God. I believe we can be at, God wants us to be at peace with our decisions. If our decisions are made properly, we can be at peace. First Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter, verse 36. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is not a sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And this is a little bit difficult, believe it or not, looking at this. This passage is interpreted differently by good Greek scholars. Some see this, this section as now referring to the father's of the betrothed women. Anyone may be referring to the father who was responsible for the betrothal, right? Betrothed may be referring to the father's betrothed virgin daughter. Some still see this as the man who the woman is betrothed to. Whichever it is, Paul is saying that you do not have to doubt whether or not you are in God's will if you have exercised wisdom understanding the will of God. He is simply saying that from his experience, it would be easier one way. But again, the easier way isn't always the better way for individuals. I would say no matter what, marriage isn't easier. Okay, maybe in one area, the physical area, when those physical desires come in, okay, it's easier. I can fulfill those desires with my wife and vice versa, Right? But it's never easier when two sinners come together. And then if you have kids, you have a whole bunch of sinners together, have to live together. And then there's all the other things that come with it. But it still may be better if that's God's will for that person. And then I could have made another point here for verse 39 and 40, but I'm going to keep it together. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, 
She is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Again, Paul, I think, is just reminding us here of the permanence of marriage until death. Death breaks the covenant, right? And if there's going to be remarriage, again, marriage only in the Lord. And I believe it means more than just marrying a Christian. Because I believe with all my heart that you can be unequally yoked with a believer if you're not on the same page as believers. You know, I think so. that's what he's saying here. So, yeah. That's what I got. That's what I got. Any questions? That time anyway. Or comments. So I believe Paul again is just calling them to be wise and discerning. We should always be thinking about the future. And when we think about the future, the best way that we can understand the future and, and make our plans for the future is by taking to heart what he has said as us believers. Again, I always like to quote that verse that I quote that uh, in Romans. forgot which verse it is in Romans where that everything was that was written before was written for our learning. That's the whole entire Old Testament. We can see the dumb things that were made. We can see the good decisions that were made and the blessings that come from it. So how are we going to set our future? Well, let's, let's have a high view of His Word and treasure it and do our best to obey it. Right? And then just leave the rest really in God's hand. But we should make our decisions void uh, without being... Uh, make our decisions prizing this and holding this very highly. Clinging to this. Right? Believing that this is truly the truth and that this is the best thing for us. So. Amen? Amen. Alright, let's pray. Father, I thank you for... I thank you for your word. Thank you for... The truth that it is, how it's in, it, it enlightens our eyes, Lord God. As your children, Lord God, we are, we're never in the dark. But Lord, as much as that reality is true, sometimes we can seem to put out the light. And that's never good. But I thank you, Lord God, that you have given us eyes to see, ears to hear. Help us to... I say this all the time, Lord, but just help us to respond worthy of this great salvation that you have given us. I mean, that is really our purpose in this life. And so you take us home, Father. So help us to do that. I thank you and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.